Oh dear, here comes another one. Well, hey there. Welcome to a bonus episode. Bonus, bonus, bonus. Of Streamed and Screened, the podcast from Lee Enterprises, all about movies and such, and uh, TV shows and things to, to watch on the, the TV and the big screen and the your phone and tablets and wherever. Last episode, the episode that dropped just yesterday, Bruce interviewed Ryan White, the director of Goodnight Oppie, and we talked a whole bunch about documentaries. So for the bonus episode this week, I wanted to dig into the archives and pull out an episode where we talked all about mockumentaries. This is an episode that ran on November 6th, 2020. So that's two years ago, almost to the day, which means that we mention politics and elections because that was just about to happen between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Obviously, now we know how that panned out. The format is a little bit longer with the top five type things, but it's still a whole bunch of fun. Here is myself, Chris Lay, with Bruce Miller, the editor of the Sioux City Journal, and Jared McNett, who I believe at the time might have still been at the Globe Gazette, but is now working at the Sioux City Journal as a reporter. We will have that episode for you in just a moment. Sit tight. Introductions. We got Bruce. We can start with you. I have been around since I think when Lincoln was elected. So that means that if we were talking about that Lincoln mockumentary that was back in, what, 1864, um, I have all the details. But I am the editor of the Sioux City Journal, and uh, I've been covering entertainment for more than 40 years. Uh, I'm Jared McNett. I uh, work for the uh, Globe Gazette up here in uh, Mason City, Iowa. And uh, let's see, we're I'm in the dog days now of October, still watching through a, a gratuitous amount of horror movies. And I am Chris Lay. I am the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises. And the the theme for this episode is one that was suggested by my mother. Uh, and, and for the record, uh, Bruce, Jared, and any, any of your family members can, can also suggest themes if you feel so inclined to open, open the floor to them. I got to ask about mom though. What is it that she likes about mockumentaries? She has just always loved mockumentaries. Did she tell you what her favorites were? All of the Christopher Guest things have, I mean, waiting for Guffman specifically, um, was, I think the, you know, the, her, her entry points into that. And yeah, she just absolutely loves all the Christopher Guest ones, best in show. Did she get you into it then? Was she one who said, you got to see this and got you excited about it? Absolutely. Yeah. My mom has, has some of the, you know, most wonderful, uh, taste in film. Uh, and I'm sure she will uh, be happy to hear me going on, on the record with that. So mom is the best of you. I think so. Yeah. She's really great. Yeah. She, I mean, there's. She just really enjoys these weird offbeat, like you know, European and British series and films and ridiculous stuff. I think the last show that she recommended um, was a show called Utopia, uh, not the the Amazon one. It's this like British or an Australian show okay. that was, you know, uh, back in like the mid 2010s. And I can't find it anywhere. 
Like she's so she's recommending these shows that I I I think I have to buy like region free uh, DVDs on eBay to, <laughs> to end up watching where she's, uh, doing that. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, that might have to be a Christmas gift from her son. Mm, I like the sound of that. Um, but yeah, so in talking about mockumentaries, we have to kind of clear the stage a little bit and kind of, I think, move the, the Christopher guest things off. Cause everyone knows about those, uh, in, and uh, and then also address Spinal Tap, which is, I think, Bruce, you described that as being the on, on the gold level. Yeah, it's really it, because that's kind of when we first got the concept of these kinds of shows, at least on a on a mainstream situation. And Spinal Tap just set the bar so high that I think you needed somebody like Christopher Guest, who was in Spinal Tap to try and let's see what we can do with it. Let's let's crack it open a little bit and see where it goes. And people, you know, it's interesting. This last summer, I talked to um, uh, uh, Fran Drescher, who was in Spinal Tap. And she says, even to this day, after she's had success with the nanny and everything else, people still want to talk about Spinal Tap. Yeah, and like, not only did that definitely, like still kind of, it still hangs over mockumentaries even now, it hangs over musical comedies even now. Like it's hard to do any music related comedy and not still have Spinal Tap get brought up, whether it's like, you know, Dewey Cox or a pop star, which we're probably gonna talk about. Like if you do anything that's like comedic and also musical, like Spinal Tap's still gonna come up even now too. So it's it haunts a lot of different uh, halls. And I'm sure it's a huge uh, a film for rock stars when they watch it on on their buses. They can relate to it because all those kind of stupid things with the the set that wasn't measured right, with the cucumber <laughs> in the pants, with getting the, lost you know, backstage. I mean, Hello, Cleveland. It's all it's all there. Turning it up to eleven. So we can kind of clear that off. Uh, I Bruce, let, let's. I guess you know we can let's. To address the the Christopher Guest, what is your personal favorite? It has to be Guffman. Guffman. It has to be Guffman. And the reason is, is because you, when you see this small town, it's our town, it's everybody's town, that's trying to put on a show that they think is professional. You know you have theater people in your community who are like Corky. And, you know, and they think, oh, this is going to be our big break. And I'm going to need, what was it? Did he say he needed $10,000 or something to do some? It was so stupid. And then you had the actors like uh, Eugene Levy and, and Catherine O'Hara, who are just so typical of what you see in a community theater setting that it just checked all the boxes. It's just, it's unbelievable. And even now I'll have people say, well, look, Guffman showed up when I come to review something. So I think it has <laughs> that kind of, that longevity that'll always, um, always be there. So it is my favorite of all of the um, Christopher Guest, Guest films. Would you agree to that, Jared? Uh, no, I, my pick is definitely, and I, I don't know if there are many funnier lines in any movie ever than Fred Willard saying or asking, how much do you think I can bench press? Go ahead, take a guess uh, in Best in Show. Like everyone in that movie is firing on all cylinders, but Fred Willard, like, 
is just on another level. That's one of the best like comedic performances I think in any movie ever. It's just like the sad and completely over the hill like uh, TV announcer who just has no idea what's going on. <laughs> like has no qualifications for what he's announcing and just doesn't seem to give a damn. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's only in it for like the last third of the film, give or take. He's such a small role, uh, but he steals the whole thing. And, yeah. and that's, that's saying a lot for the, the stacked cast that they've got. How many times, though, on Thanksgiving have you had to sit through that before you get to eat? You're watching <laughs> that stupid dog show, and yep. it is exactly like what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is a buy-in there. You kind of know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, Waiting for Guffman was the first one that he made. Best in Show was the second one. Mighty Wind was the third one. Not as good. They, I mean, they're still really good. Mighty Wind has an amazing soundtrack. Um, I mean, the music they got is perfect. Same thing with Waiting for Guffman, where they they nailed all of the aesthetics of the people that they were you know, gently ribbing. Blaine, the stool capital of Missouri. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just been this kind of downward slide. For Your Consideration was good. And then I think I watched Mascots and couldn't tell you anything about it. Mascots was awful. Um, for Your Consideration, the thing I love best was Catherine O'Hara, especially when she she could do this thing that made her face look like she'd had a lot of plastic surgery. It, it's And she'll do it for you if you ask her. So next time you see her, say, do the face. And she can do that face where she kind of just tightens up everything. And she looks like she's had a lot of work done. It's kind of a toss up for me. I think Waiting for Guffman is probably my personal favorite, partly because I, it was the first one I saw. It's the one I've seen the most. It, I mean, I, I would have seen it around the time that I was in musicals in high school. So it's got that special place. Uh, and would love to see him hit another one out of the park. We'll see. But he doesn't really need to because I think, isn't he an earl or a lord or whatever it is in, in uh, Great Britain? So Fifth baron. Is it a baron? Yeah. The right honorable Christopher Hayden Guest. So how nice is that? Yeah. He, he's known for these insane kind of screwball comedies. But as an interview subject, he is known to be very dry. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So that's where we stand. Obviously, Spinal Tap is in the the tippy top of the pantheon and then everything else. The Hall else. of Fame. So we can scoot right along into some other ones. Uh, would I mean, we started with Bruce last week. So you want to jump in on this, Jared? Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, I will just start off with uh, some glorious stupidity because um, the, the show is also a mockumentary and all the movies and then are mockumentaries too. And that's uh, the first of the uh, Trailer Park Boys movies, which I think is the, uh, the best of the Trailer Park Boys movies. And that show just has some of the most gloriously stupid characters like in any show I think that's ever been made. And um, I know people have talked about before that, um, you know, something like uh, like a Big Bang Theory is really, really stupid jokes about smart people. I think the reverse is true of something like Trailer Park Boys or It's Always Sunny or like even, you know, Seinfeld, where those are all shows that are really, really smart, funny jokes about the stupidest people possible. And that's the glory of the show Trailer Park Boys. And that's the glory of the first movie, which came out in uh, 2006. Are they still making things or not? They are, I think. You can throw on any random episode and it's just going to be, you know, 15, 20 minutes of really fun, glorious chaos. 
and this is Canadian, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, when I was a kid, I we lived in North Dakota, and it was close to the border, so we got all of the Canadian channels, and they would get American TV shows before we would in Canada. So we could watch whatever, you know, the hot show was. We would get to see it maybe a week before you'd see it in the United States just by watching Canadian TV. But then they would have these shows, a lot of animal shows. There'd be a lot of like beaver shows and whatnot that you'd have to kind of sit through because that was their Canadian content. And they always did documentaries or movies of the week about Louis Rial and a lot of trappers and traders up in Canada. So that was the Canadian content back, or they, another one was Headline Hunters. They loved to have these shows that were kind of a game show with old crusty men talking about the, the stories that were in the news and trying to guess things. So that was their content. And I think something like SCTV was just such a, what is this? You know, it's gonna be entertaining, it's not educational. Um, I think that threw them for a loop. And now look, Schitt's Creek won all of the Emmys this last year, so. Maybe they have a good way of doing things. Maybe they're smarter about it than we are here. So Trailer Park Boys for Jaron? Absolutely. What about you, Bruce? I am going with Medusa, Dare to be Truthful. Did you ever get to see this? No. It was a Showtime movie, kind of a movie, if you will. It was, I think, 90 minutes. And it was Julie Brown, not downtown Julie Brown, who was one of the MTV people, but a comedian named Julie Brown, who played like she was Madonna. And it is so such a hoot because Madonna had was doing her, I think it was Blonde Ambition tour. And Julie just decided that she was going to spoof Madonna. And I think it's like the blonde leading the blonde or something. And you have you see her backstage where she's trying to pray with the um with the uh dancers that she's in the show with. I mean it's it's really funny. Very, very funny. And it just knocks Madonna on every one of the points that she was so kind of precious about back in the day. So look for it. Medusa, dare to be truthful. Tom Kenny and Bobcat Goldthwait are both in this, and also Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott, that, yeah. And that's he, pretty he good uh, some, company to have. Chris Elliott is very, very, very funny. And I don't want to say some of the lines, but I, it, it has one of those ones where you go, oh, God, I think I repeated that line about 20 times back in the day. All right, Chris, let's hear yours. I'm going to make the Chris Elliott connection, and I am going to say CB4. Yes. From 1993, the it's sort of Spinal Tap, but for gangster rap. Chris Rock is in it as the main star. It is just this wonderful send up of all the you know, gangster rap tropes that everyone was so frightened by at the time, as well as admitting pretty visibly that it's it's a business these these are business people they're so much of the the it tackles aspects of of authenticity in in the genre not to get too academic i guess about it you know for uh for a show or for a for a movie that is as ridiculous as cb4 is but uh chris elliott plays the the documentarian who's putting together this this whole show and yeah cb4 excellent movie how was chris rock i thought he was really good i think this would have been around the time that he was uh i think coming off or right around like snl uh that he was on there for a, a brief window of time 
Um, it's actually, it's directed by Tamara Davis, who did Billy Madison and Half-Baked. And I think she's married to one of the Beastie Boys. And she also directed this fantastic documentary about Jean-Michel Basquiat called The Radiant Child, because she was pals with him in the New York scene earlier uh, before he he passed away as well. Uh, interesting life. And then uh, the movie uh, CB4 was actually, I didn't realize this until I was watching it uh, to prep for this, and was one of the writers is Nelson George, who is a very well-known rap writer and uh, author of a whole bunch of books about hip hop culture. Even though Easy E pops up in it, like considering that Chris Rock's character is basically just Easy E, that movie is not CB4 is not very kind to Easy E in any way, shape, or form because like his whole thing in that movie is just stealing the like rep and the identity of like someone who actually did crime. The people they get for quotes is such a strange bunch. You've got rappers that show up and, you know, to be talking heads and easy E like you mentioned and Shaquille O'Neal yep. <laughs> shows up as well as the butthole surfers. Yes. <laughs> All wearing CB4 gear. Uh, yeah, it is. It's fantastic. Very, very under, underappreciated movie. That's a good pick. Well, it's, it's me again then, right? So uh, my next one, I kind of didn't know where this one fits because this is also a little bit of found footage, which I think, you know, kind of fits into this universe. It's, it's, it's at least kin to it. And that's um, Troll Hunter from uh, 2010. Uh, it's a, <laughs> what? It's a, yeah, it's a, a Norwegian movie. Did you not see this, Bruce? I've never heard of this. <laughs> I can vouch. It, it's a real film. Yep. And You've it's incredible. It? Mm-hmm. I got to hear more. The the name of the movie is exactly what the movie is about. It's about this like group of um, Norwegian um, students, like college students, um, who go out with a cameraman. Um, and at first, they're going to make like a documentary about a um, like a bear poacher or something like that. And then they slowly start to realize that like you know all the stuff they heard is like good little Norwegian kids about trolls actually turn out to be true. And then they have all these weird encounters and stuff um, with like these giant uh, mountain trolls. Um, It's really, really goofy, but it also has some nice little uh, tense moments in it too. And yeah, don't let the really, really, really silly title fool you because it's, it's a very well-made movie and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. The effects in there are fantastic. Yeah. The, uh, the director Andre uh, Overdahl directed the scary stories movie from last year and he did the autopsy of jane doe a few years ago and it looks like he he's actually set to direct an adaptation of stephen king's the long walk which should be pretty dark but yeah i can vouch it's it's a really good movie bruce i will put it on the list i am such a fan of Chris Lilly that I have to have Summer Heights High on here. And I don't know if you ever remember this, but it was set in a high school, and is he in from New Zealand, Australia, somewhere, you know, down under. And he plays all these characters. Jamee is this girl who's kind of taken with herself and everything is about her. Mr. G was a teacher there who taught um, the, uh, the theater classes, and he was, trying to do a an original show 
based on the death of a girl at school. And I mean, you had all these characters that Chris Lilly has been able to do just perfectly. It's been on HBO. He's done many sequels to it um, that kind of give you a sense of what kids are like there. And it's it's just, I, if you haven't watched Chris Lilly, please do. I think he's one of the most talented people who hasn't gotten a, a real big showcase in the United States. But Summer Heights High was the one that brought him to my attention. He did do something before that, but Summer Heights High was like, I was just smitten with what he could do. I'm getting a lot of Tracy Ullman vibes. Very much so, very much so, yeah. Um, and then, you know, he does it with the mockumentary format where you see, you know, there it's just snippets of interviews that are kind of pulled together. But um, yeah, and you find those people that are so talented that you wonder if they could ever play just characters because they're used to playing all the characters. So my second choice was Summer Heights High. Bruce is coming with the deep cuts. Right? <laughs> oh, I'll get back to those really easy, the low-hanging fruit here that we have. No, I appreciate this, though, because I've never heard of these first two, so this is great. Oh, you once you see Summer Heights High, I trust me, you will want to see all of the other ones. Jamey was a really good one. He did a, uh, um, a boy. He was a, a teenage boy who was a truant. And he would he created what he called the his his signature logo. And and again, I can't say it on this because it's dirty, but it later fueled another one that I loved on um, was it Netflix? What was the one where it's um, help me now? I'm going to think of American it. Vandal. American Vandal, exact dictation. Yes, it um, uh, it it gave rise to that where you can go. Okay, I know where they're getting this from. It's easily from Chris Lilly. That's where they got the inspiration. Well, speaking of deep cuts, is it Troll Hunter Two? <laughs> it is not, <laughs> but I would totally watch that in a heartbeat. Uh, the the film that I'm going to pick it's kind of an oddball uh, example from the Criterion Collection, but very much not uh, along with their art house hoity-toity vibe in in a lot of ways. It is a very very pitch black comedy from 1992 called Man Bites Dog. It is uh, it's a Belgian film, so it's all in French. It's in black and white. It is it follows a a couple of uh, documentary film filmmakers who have uh, embedded themselves with a serial killer. Oh God. And along the way become increasingly complicit in the, I guess, quote unquote work that he is doing. And it, it gets, I mean, it's pretty dark, but it's also very, very wry. And this, you know, kind of bleak, comedic commentary on the nature of documentaries in and of themselves and violence on TV. And um, yeah. And the, the, it's got three directors, all of whom are the, the top three build actors in the film. So it's a really tight little, little uh, collection uh, of, of people that are making it. Uh, none of whom I, I, I would absolutely just butcher uh, the, the pronunciation of the names, but man bites dog is the, the place to go for that. 
See, I've I've seen that plenty over the years, but I like everything I saw of it would have never made me think that it was a, a mockumentary or even like a very dark comedy. I just thought it was just a very heavy, like violent meditation. It it is violent, but it's more. I mean, there's a lot of situational, like I like how 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 did we find ourselves in this mess, uh, you know? And the the main lead, uh, Benoit uh, Polvord. There, see, I said I wasn't going to try to pronounce it, and now you know why. Um, is uh, is very charming, and sells a lot of this with with, with such a straight face that the comedy comes through him as as a straight man, which is one of the aspects in, in really contemplating a lot of the mockumentary stuff. You have to have this this straight face to make a lot of this land. It was the same thing with CB4, um, with um, a bunch of the other ones that are on on my list. So, yeah. So, yeah, Man Bites Dog is my pick. I am here for that. Um, well, my, geez, my, uh, this is the real dark night of the soul now because my next one is also about a serial killer. All right. Um, and that's um, – I just watched this for the first time the other day um, as part of my just, uh, horror movie binge uh, for October. And that's uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown from 1976, um, which is very much structured almost like a uh, like it would have been a TV documentary because it has this very, you know, almost heavy-handed, um, you know, matter-of-fact TV uh, documentary-style narration to it. And it's about a, like, series of real attacks that actually happened, but – they, they go a little bit differently um, in the movie. And one thing to me that was so interesting about it when I watched it is that it, for a horror movie or thriller, it's very quiet. There's not a lot of music during some of the scenes that are supposed to be particularly scary. It's kind of like Zodiac almost in that way. Um, and that really makes it, I think, an even more effective and you know powerful movie in some ways that there's not that like extra layer of like, you know, scary music or anything to frame it. It's just a very raw um kind of movie and the, the the killer in it is like really haunting because it's just a guy with a bag over his head and like eye holes cut out and that's it um so yeah i uh it's not it's not a fun movie but it's really well done um um for a uh just a kind of random mid-70s horror movie yeah some stunt casting of don wells who was marianne from gilligan's island yes that's right did you uh did you ever see that one bruce I did, but probably did because that's back in the day. But mm-hmm. I don't remember it. That's why I'm kind of drawing a blank. You know, question with uh, how did they do with the the filmmakers? Do you see the filmmakers at any point, and they say, "And now we're going to do this," or is it just done like it's a documentary and they piece it together? It's it's more like you know, I um, it's more like a voice of God kind of thing almost with the the narrator in the movie, okay. if that okay. makes sense. Yeah, I watched it uh, a couple of years ago, and if I remember correctly, it's got kind of the the pace of a western, but it certainly <laughs> fits into like the slasher mold. Which is another thing that's so jarring about it because it's before slashers were really like a cottage industry, and so yeah, the pacing does not feel at all right for what should be a slasher, which is also weird when you're watching it. So what you got, Bruce? Next one. Okay, I'm, now I'm going to go popular for you guys so that we don't get too far afield. Drop Dead Gorgeous. Do you remember seeing that? 
It was about a beauty pageant in Minnesota. Oh yeah, it was a good thing to see all the girls. But the cast list is like unbelievable. Kirsten Dunst, Amy Adams, Denise Richards, um, Kirstie Alley, Allison Janney, all these, these big names that we've seen later. Um, we're in this little kind of small film about this dumb beauty pageant in Minnesota. And they capture so many things that are right about that world. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And if you see, it's been on, they've been, you know, grabbing it on uh, one streaming service after another, and then they disappear very quickly. But if you see that it's on, watch it, because it is one that you'll get a great laugh from, and you'll recognize the characters instantly. It's like the people that live in your small town. And it has a real bite to it. Oh, it's mean. It's vicious. Yeah. And Kristen Dunst, she she works at a funeral home uh, doing the makeup on dead dead people. And it's very funny how she's able to kind of straddle these two worlds. Even at that age, she was young then. But now when you see her in things like Fargo, where you go, you know, she really has something. And that new, the new series that she does uh, in Florida, where she's it's set in like the 80s, you see glimpses of that in that early film. You see mm -hmm. what she's able to do. <clears throat> I remember there was somebody I knew from because they did shoot it in Minnesota and she was in it and she was a friend of mine. I thought, oh my God, they really did want to be authentic because she did sound like that. So yeah, it's a it's a fascinating film, but that's a mainstream one for you and you should be able to find it. Yeah, and that's one, it has some pretty... It has a solid comedy credential in that it was directed by Michael Patrick Jan, who was in The State, the, uh, the MTV sketch comedy show, and directed a bunch of those. Also, Reno 911, he was behind the camera for a bunch of those, too. Which is a, a, another all-time mockumentary. Uh, Absolutely. I love to death. Um, yeah, God, that's a great show. Wonderful pick. Well, it's on the list. It's <laughs> a great pick. <laughs> yes, it is. So I'm going to do the next one for me is a movie. I talked about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about Albert Brooks and my pick is real life. The first feature film that Albert Brooks did in 1979. This is on the heels of him doing a whole bunch of short films for SNL. And it is, it follows him as a very pretentious New York or a, a very pretentious LA uh, documentary director who is doesn't have any kind of documentary scruples at all. And they pick a, a Midwest family uh, played by Charles Grodin uh, is the father. And uh, Francis Lee McCain is the, 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 the wife. And it just devolves from there in wonderful, ridiculous ways. Albert Brooks, takes the it, Albert Brooks does a great job in in the lead role because he doesn't take himself seriously at all and allows himself to be this absolute you know bottom feeder character in a way that is so trumped up uh and yeah kind of Woody Allen uh anxious nebbishy whatever but has uh has more uh, depth, I think, than a lot of the, the stock Woody Allen types uh, that Woody Allen has, you know, put out there. But it's fantastic. Harry Shearer, another uh, mm -hmm. uh, spinal tap. Yep, he's in there. James L. Brooks is in there uh, in the background. If you if you blink, you'll you'll catch those two. 
Was this trying to send up an American Family, that series yeah. on PBS? Yep. American Family, the the seven up series, I think it was it was touching on. And it really presaged what shows like Big Brother uh, were trying to do. And a lot of the reality TV tropes that people know and uh, I guess grudgingly love. <laughs> do you watch any reality TV like that? I have watched a whole bunch of The Bachelor Uh there was the the guy who came in second place a few years ago on on the Bachelorette. He he was from Madison, and so I did recaps for uh, Isthmus, a local like alt weekly uh, here uh, of of the show. If anybody wants to track those down, that was a ton of fun. Um, so yeah, I I've certainly seen a lot of of reality TV, and I know the the vibes that they're going for, and how it's one of the the most faked, <laughs> uh, unreal mediums out there you know i think a, a lot of that started up when they had a writer's strike and they couldn't write scripts and so they figured well let's just have them make it up as they go along and look how many they did you know all those mtv like series and then went into mainstream and now that's all bravo seems to be so reality tv has its roots in mockumentaries it does it really does and real life is a fantastic example of that and I highly recommend it. And uh, it is right now, it's out on the Criterion channel uh, as well. I think for, I don't know if it's just this month or how long they're going to keep that up, but it is fantastic. For not having been in that many things, like over the years, considering how long he's been around, like Albert Brooks's uh, resume is pretty damn impressive. The movies that he's actually popped up in over the years and some of the other stuff that he's done. Yeah. As an actor in broadcast news, when he has that flop sweat thing, it is just, it's classic. <laughs> yeah. And he, he almost steals the the whole show in Drive. I was about to say, yeah. I mean, I've talked plenty about that movie because it's it's my favorite movie of the 2010s. He is so menacing in that movie without being the normal menacing villain. Like, there's just something so deeply, deeply terrifying about him in that movie. Well, what do you got next, Jared? Um, so next up, uh, for me, now we're starting to get near the top. Um, it's one of those that I loved as soon as I saw it for the first time. And that's a uh, district nine from, uh, 2009, which is, uh, kind of a, a sci-fi, like another one that's sort of found footage and, you know, there's a little bit of documentation to it too, like the way it sort of plays out. And it's it's just really funny as as a sci-fi movie. I think it has you know most sci-fi movies are always trying to say something, and so I think it has a lot to say about you know xenophobia and, and you know social segregation and that kind of thing. Um, and it's also obviously a send up of like the um, the apartheid era in uh, in South Africa, and it just it felt like a a game changer kind of movie um, when it came out. And it's kind of a shame Neil Blumenkamp hasn't. Uh, done a whole lot since then i know he's been active but it's he, he hasn't really done anything on the level since then which is kind of a bummer because district nine was just such a uh, a incredible movie when it came out that felt really uh really unique i hate saying unique but i think it fits uh for a movie like that he's someone who cut his teeth on the the special effects side and then they brought him over as as a director because i think he made like District 9 is based on a short film that he did almost as like a proof of concept. And so in in him directing that, they gave him, you know, they 
paid to have it made into a whole feature film, which I believe Peter Jackson, I want to say, was the producer. Yep, he was. And so he helped make that and then Elysium and then Chappie after that, (laughs) Uh, which I mean, these are all, you know, fantastic from a technical standpoint, but don't have a whole lot of soul. And he never, he has yet to, I guess, catch the, the same lightning in a bottle that he had with district nine, which was Oscar nominated for best picture <laughs> Yep. in, in the first year that they expanded it. To, was it eight or nine, nine? Yeah. That, that movie is the ultimate proof of why it was a good thing for them to expand that because exactly. I mean, th- those are the kind of movies that should be making it in with a, an expanded, um, number that you can have like that because it's a really really smart movie you know sometimes sci-fi movies when they're trying to be you know topical or like trenchant can kind of beat you over the head with it i don't think district nine is that guilty of that i didn't realize that that was nominated for best picture really Mm -hmm. wow that's going to be one of those trivia questions on who uh who wants to be a millionaire or something they're going to go which of these was not nominated for best picture yeah, because that got in the same year that like Up also did and Avatar. Well, and Avatar was supposed to win it, but ha ha, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> in your face. Right. District 9 is on Netflix right now. If anybody at home wants to see what all the fuss is about from yes. 11 years ago. <laughs> all the rage. Bruce, what you got next? I'm going to pick Borat, the first one, um, because it was such a bizarre thing. And... Sasha Baron Cohen introduced a character that is so great at sending up our culture just by being a stranger in it. And I, you know, I thought that he would never be able to do another one because it was just too big. And then look, this last, what, month, we got another one. Yep. The newest one is funny, but it's not as eye-opening as the first one was. I definitely agree with the, uh, the not as eye-opening, although I think in general, I actually ended up liking the, and this might be prisoner of the moment, but I think I actually ended up liking the, uh, the second one, better. the newer one more with, with the comedy stuff in it. Um, some of the, the physical comedy in the, the newer one is incredible. Like the, the fertility dance, um, thing is <laughs> just an incredible commitment to the bit from the, uh, the actress that's playing, um, his daughter. So is like her at that, like local County, like Republican women, Republican women. Um, yeah, convention like that's another incredible commitment to the bent. And then I, I, the the thing I think I ended up appreciating most in that entire movie ends up being when he goes uh, to that synagogue dressed as the most like horrifying and like stereotyped like uh, caricature, like anti-Semitic caricature of like Jewish people because it's so incredibly uncomfortable and so incredibly cringe. But he manages to wring some like pretty incredible like pathos out of that entire like section when he's like talking to that woman that's a holocaust survivor and she is wonderful isn't she reaching out to him i can't believe like they found that patient of a woman to deal with that the lead up to showing him and and, like the the arc that you feel that that you're writing during that whole segment and then the final punchline that he adds to it, which I won't, I won't spoil here because you need way too much context, but um, yeah, his, his takeaway and the complete absence of, of learning uh, any, any lessons is just, I mean, it's just chef's kiss. It is amazing. (laughs) The thing I think though, that I noticed with the new one 
is that it does look like it was there are situations that are set up yeah that aren't as kind of random as the first one was where we had no idea and you know when you see the people running after him it's borat it's borat and um i think some of those people like the lady in the that takes care of the daughter while he's away and they talk in the car to me that seems like it was staged it didn't seem as fresh as it should be she actually came out recently i mean it was like a trending thing on twitter for a little while uh where she felt betrayed by the film because she bought on to the whole thing and um you're talking about the um the babysitter character right 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 yeah yeah that was one where she you know really thought that they were doing a legit thing despite the fact that it's clearly uh an insane premise <laughs> that that she's being set up with when they used to have uh, when he was going against politicians and whatnot they had no clue who this guy was now there has to be somebody who's aware of you know that there's a punker out there the thing i found strange with rudy giuliani is that he allowed this woman who has no credentials in to interview him and yet when he was here in town the local media couldn't get to him they huh. wouldn't allow him to have a news conference so i find that kind of strange that they'd be suckered into this especially when she you know what is her outlet it's nothing they've heard of and they would easily go sorry we're not doing that and then they get all this other footage and how do they wire the room so they have you know so they can do all that extra stuff i i some of it i just question yeah, yeah it's funny but i still don't think it's as kind of surprise um filmmaking as the first one was well i wonder if like where in in the timeline of events in rudy giuliani's life did when, when he came to to iowa and when he was interviewed for this thing well it was last fall oh and, yeah that would have been well before and you know and so i thought isn't this weird because at that time there were no real controversies surrounding him it wasn't like you know he's this kind of wild man on tv ranting about whatever um he was just a a, a speaker he was a chamber of commerce speaker and he was playing his I am America's mayor card. And then all of a sudden, here we come now, and there's this, this freedom of letting him just talk to anybody. And she handles it really. I mean, that woman, whoever she is, and if she has a fake name in this movie, whatever it might be, she is a real find. The idea that she can match Sasha Baron Cohen at every level and be just as outrageous as him and, and, really kind of beat him at at his own game um is remarkable and she if, if i were putting her up for an oscar nomination she'd be a candidate for best supporting actress i did think ultimately and maybe it's because it got so covered before the movie actually came out that the the whole part with the uh, giuliani was like a little bit of a letdown when you actually see it in the movie but one thing i do think is impressive is like even in a situation like that sasha baron cohen's like commitment to not breaking character is incredible when you consider something like that they're only going to have one shot at because once like giuliani realizes what's up he's gone there he's not going to stick around to do another take it also makes you wonder how many other people they got access to and then the bit fell apart when they were filming. Yeah. It's like with the Jackass movies where for every single stunt that makes it onto the show or into the movie, there are two or three that either 
you know, were, were filmed and fell apart and th- that you never see. Like, did, did he embed himself with, with other sets of yokels, <laughs> you know, and, 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 the, and these were the two that were better? I, I don't know. Then you get a fourth pick. I do. Uh, my fourth pick is the Ruddles. All you need is cash. Oh. From 1978, it is extremely short. Uh, from it's like only 76 minutes. It's a mockumentary about a Beatles type band whose arc follows basically the, the rise and fall of the Beatles. Uh, it's uh, directed and, and stars uh, directed by and stars Eric Idle. Uh, and it's got a handful of other Monty Python adjacent actors, but it's not technically a Monty Python film. I think it, it sprung from a show that Eric Idle was doing for the BBC, um, like a sketch show, and it's absolutely fantastic. George Harrison is in it, at, like not as himself. <laughs> Randomly, um, it's also has some SNL side players in there. Lorne Michaels shows up. Um, and yeah, it's Gilda. Yep. Gilda's in there briefly. Uh, and one of, one of the reasons that it works is because the music is so good. Just like with Spinal Tap, you have to get the tone just right. And, and that aspect has to be done with such an intensely straight face that, um, yeah, I think one of the songs that the Ruddles do is like goose stepping girl is one of them. I, it's just absolutely ridiculous and wonderful and silly, but again, just structured so tightly. And yeah, uh, uh, what are you about to say, Bruce? I thought it would, you know, didn't it air on NBC? I thought it aired <laughs> on NBC at one point because I remember seeing it during that kind of peak time of Saturday Night Live. And this was like maybe one of those off weeks when they showed it. This is just me flashing back to God knows when. No, it did. And it didn't do very well. No. I remember it not being the, everybody thought it was going to be this really cool spoof of the Beatles and it really wasn't. But, you know, the idea that uh, the Monty Python people would punk the, probably the biggest act around at the time was brave. Who, and and they were also friends with, I mean, at least George Harrison, he was one of the, you know, funding, you know, executive producers of uh, Life of Brian when nobody else would make it. That's the, the big thing about George Harrison is that he was a great movie producer. If you look back on his credits, they're on a lot of big name movies at the time. And that was kind of where he took his direction. It wasn't like he was going to stay in music like Paul or John. He was going to do something else. And um, he was a big force behind a lot of pictures if you look him up sometime. The level to which this movie definitely takes shots at the Beatles and I mean, you know, definitely shows in pretty direct fashion (laughs) the way that Apple records was run in such a poor manner. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, some of the jokes you, you probably need to have read at least one or two biographies of, of the Beatles or whatever to kind of get, but it's, it, it, it goes pretty deep into Beatles lore Uh, without talking about the Beatles. How do you think the Beatles are viewed today by young people? There was that song that came out recently or like a year or two ago. Was it a Kanye West song that had Paul McCartney on and everyone's like, who's Paul McCartney? (laughs) 
Am I am I correct in that, Jared? I, I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, God, I'm a huge Kanye fan, and I can't remember. Only one, I think, was the song that had Paul McCartney on. Yeah, um, that's the one. Yeah. So I think they are known, but not not the iconic. Right. For some, if you ask people of a certain age who was the greatest band ever, they would say the Beatles. Yeah. And I think if you said that today, they would not be on the list. Oh, I don't know about that. From the young people. From the young people, maybe. Not to get too far afield, but yeah, it's always tough with any stuff that's like that foundational kind of stuff because, you know, there's really so much has been built on it. that It's hard to even appreciate the the original thing anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I, like I can watch, you know, something like um, in, in the movie realm, something like Citizen Kane and I like appreciate it and like love it as a movie. I'm never going to say it's I think it's the like greatest movie ever made. But part of that is just because so much stuff has, you know, built off of that in so many different ways that are hard to even kind of trace now. So it's, you know, it's it's like talking about error at a certain point. Well, we're coming into the home stretch here. Can I just say one more thing oh, please, about yeah. that? Is a lot of times people don't realize who created the original thing, who had the, the great first idea. They just have seen the people who have stolen the idea, you know, and you mentioned Citizen Kane, that whole kind of sequence where they did the, the table, where they show the distancing between the couple. Um, that's been done many times since then, but nobody goes back and says, you know, that was originally in Citizen Kane and that was an Orson Welles thing. And he should be given credit for being that creative at the time, but they don't. And so I think we've had so many people stealing ideas that they just water down the original concept and what creativity went into those original, original things. So it could be the same way with what we're talking about today is that, you know, whose great idea was this? Can we pin it on anyone as much as we'd like to think Spinal Tap was one of the first? It probably is not at all. Okay, we're back to the, the last ones. Yep. Let me guess. It's a horror film and it has uh, foreign influences and I don't know any of the actors. Well, it is sort of a horror film. It does have foreign influences, but I think you know the actors and I think you know the uh, director because I had to put what we do in the shadows on this list. And... Oh, I love it. 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 That is so good. And I know, um, I know Chris uh, had it on a rough sketch, rough draft of his as well. Um, I, I just think that movie is an absolute joy. The the chemistry that all of the uh, those guys have um, in the movie is just infectious. Um, uh, Stu, the guy that plays like their friend that they don't turn into a vampire, is like I think maybe one of my favorite parts of the movie. That just like deadpan kind of hanger on. Um, it, it, it's just an absolute bias. And if people don't know, it's got um, Taika Waititi in it. It's like the very um, uptight uh, kind of um, vampire. Um, and then, you know, Jermaine Clement, who's, you know, been in Flight of the Concords and a lot of different comedies uh, since then. He's basically like the uh, the Vlad the Impaler uh, type of um, yeah, uh, vampire. Um, there's like the the younger, like rebel uh, vampire who's, you know, very cool and then they have a Nosferatu uh, type vampire that's like 8,000 years old and like sleeps in a coffin in the, the bottom of this basement that they all like hang out in. So they have every different type of like vampire stereotype possible um, in this movie. They get in a fight with a gang of werewolves at one point, which is some of my favorite physical comedy uh, in any movie. It's just like 
if you've watched enough vampire movies or just horror movies in general, it, it makes the movie that much funnier, I think. I love the series, too. Before you jumped on, Jared and I were both saying that that is a a show that we have been meaning to watch and have not yet. You're kidding me. You have not watched it? No. It's been on my list for a very long time, but I just have not sat down and, and plugged it into my eyeballs. Bruce, would you put... Um... Would you put the the show on the same level as the movie? You know, it's like so many of these things. The show makes it more, the TV show makes it more accessible for a larger audience. Whereas the movie, you really have to kind of lean in and, and know the references and enjoy it. Whereas I think if you took somebody cold to it, they go, what is this? You know what I mean? But I, both versions work. And because I think the original people worked on the series, they were able to figure it out and not betray what they created in the movie. That's good. Okay, I'm gonna go back to a TV well and tie it to a movie well, if I can do that. I would love that. Okay, and because we're in political season, it fits. Tanner 88, which was on HBO, and then after that was Bob Roberts. Ooh. And they're both mockumentaries about the political process. And uh, the, the Tanner 88 followed this candidate who was running and how his whole, it very much played into the hands of the candidate where you saw the behind the scenes things and what was going on and how low end a lot of that actually is. <laughs> Veep really kind of stole that thunder um, and just went with it. But Tanner was really the first one where you go, oh my God, this is probably how it really is. And then Bob Roberts took it to another level and, um, made sure that there was a kind of a hidden meaning, uh, another uh, another story that they needed to tell with the process of all of it. And um, it was um, Tim Robbins at one of his best. He was really good as Bob Roberts. I don't think it's streaming anywhere, is it? Yeah, I don't know that it is. It should now, it really should, unless there were some rights things. You know, usually when they end up not showing up, it's because they had music that they couldn't clear for another another medium and so that's yeah. why we don't see a lot of them but yeah and tim robbins directed it wrote it starred in it all that kind of stuff and it showed how talented he was at a time when a lot of people just looked at him as susan sarandon's girlfriend or boyfriend rather <laughs> so there's you know there's a little you know he showed you know i really am talented and then we started seeing him in other movies and then he won an oscar so there you are Gore Vidal is in that movie, like as an actor. Seems like a movie that would have a lot of plays themselves type things. Yes. The only movie with a uh, Gore Vidal and also Jack Black. He played a senator. He played, I look, I'm looking it up right now. He played a senator in there, but he was that same kind of pompous Gore Vidal kind of character. It wasn't, he wasn't too far afield from anything. All right. So Bob Roberts and Tanner 88. It's a, it's a double, a double header or a double feature. Well, that leaves me, and my number one is Popstar. Never Stop, nice. Never Stopping, oh. which I'm sure that we have talked about at some point in the past. I can't remember what the theme was, where it came up, but um, just a absolutely fantastic lampoon of the Justin Bieber. Yeah, the boy band, the you know history of rap in a way of, of you know, white co-opting of, of rap tropes um you know that you know flash in the pan stardom and hubris in in the music industry 
Uh, and it is, I, I, there are so many amazing jokes in, in that movie. It just, you know, just bing, bang, boom, one after another, absolutely incredible. And, uh, along the same lines of some of the other movies we were talking about, the music is perfect. The music is at like it, it, you know, it's again, very straight faced, doesn't pull any triggers. It's not, it's silly without being too silly. Um, yeah, absolutely love it. Pop star, never stop, never stopping. If you have not seen it, and I know a lot of people did not see it, I would say see it. And the, the scene in the limousine is like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm watching this. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, Andy Samberg had a good kind of run with that stuff. And then he hit that one that was on HBO about the Tour de France that I thought was dreadful. Oh, Tour de Pharmacy? Yes. I thought that was bad. They went through like a, a sports phase for a while because they did the Tour de Pharmacy. And then they did the, was it Seven Days in Hell? The McEnroe, Borg, whatever type thing. Right. And right. then they put out that EP a couple of years ago of Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, the, the lost rap album that they put out. Another, I that was one of my favorite albums that came out that year. And then they put out 40 minutes of music videos to go along with it. Yeah, so they've, they've got like a weird sports angle to the whole Lonely Island thing uh, recently. I think what helped your pop star was that they had somebody else who was helping them direct. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're just kind of jawing with others, not unlike a podcast. <laughs> not unlike it. You lose the shape of it, you know what I mean? Where you really need to have somebody say, no, let's cut that. That doesn't work. And I think when they're just left to their own devices, sometimes they leave things in that could easily go. Between that one and uh, Hot Rod, which I was talking about before we started recording, that's, that's a perfect one-two punch for them. Both just unimpeachably funny movies. So yeah, pop star never stop, never stopping. Hopefully um, these goofy films, most of them goofy, I suppose, uh, get, get everyone over whatever election hump that uh, we are potentially still in. We are recording this the Friday before the election, so we have no clue what state the world will be in when this goes out online uh, Friday. <laughs> so that was the bonus episode for this week, all about mockumentaries. If you haven't listened to Bruce's interview with Ryan White, the director of Goodnight Oppie, which we released yesterday, definitely check that out and make sure that you are subscribed wherever you get the show and, you know, rate, review, tell your friends, dig back through our archives just like i'm pulling one from here for you we've talked about a whole bunch of different stuff yeah you can find us on all the streaming platforms and twitter and instagram and all those other places we'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about thank you so much have a wonderful day and we'll be back next week with more fun stuff that's how we do radio